From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the difference between good acting and bad acting? I'm Melissa Wilkinson, and I write for Vox about film and culture. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I know I'm a terrible actor. The few times I've tried to portray someone other than myself, I've immediately gotten all up in my head, hyper-aware that I'm pretending to be somebody else. I can't say sentences like a normal person would. I forget how to walk. Acting is really hard. Which is why it's so incredible to watch a great actor at the top of their game. A Daniel Day-Lewis. I've abandoned my child! Or Viola Davis. I've been right here with your toy. I got a life too. Or Philip Seymour Hoffman. You have taken vows. Obedience being one. Or Andre Holland. What was I supposed to do? Performers who don't just pretend really well, but bring some kind of soul and transformation to their entire body and demeanor in order to channel a character. That's what great acting looks like. Give those people a gold statue, right? Well, it turns out for a lot of history, that wasn't what good acting looked like at all. In fact, this kind of acting, the realistic and soulful kind we tend to think of as good acting, really only arrived in America around a century ago. That was thanks to a few Russian theater practitioners, most notably a guy named Konstantin Stanislavsky, and the American playwrights and actors who came to believe in a new way of acting. And the techniques they espoused, which in America came to be called the method, spread like wildfire, changing Hollywood forever. Not just Hollywood, though. As we watched method actors on screen, we started to believe new things about what an authentic human life looked like. Or how, for instance, a great president ought to seem when we look at him on the TV screen. Isaac Butler knows all about this. He's a critic and historian, theater director, podcaster, and author of the new book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, which is full of vibrant, fascinating stories about something that would change everything. 
With the Oscars coming up and questions of authenticity and performing roles on stage and in real life all around us, I wanted to talk to Isaac about the method and its effects on our reality. Not just as a set of techniques, but as a cultural force in the 20th century. Isaac Butler, welcome to Vox Conversations. Hey, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, Alyssa. I wanted to start in a place, I'll put it this way, I'm a film critic. I certainly write about acting and actors sometimes, but I find myself kind of struggling to figure out what acting even really is. You know, what am I actually talking about when I'm talking about acting? So I guess the question is, what is acting? So, you know me, I am, you know, someone who loves research a lot. So Mm -hmm. I thought I would actually look up what one of the major characters of my book had to say on this subject, who is Richard Boleslavsky, who is actually the, the person, the first person who really taught the theories of Stanislavski in the United States and wrote the first book in English on Stanislavski's techniques. And he gave this whole series of lectures each one of which is answering what is seemingly a very basic question about theater, like what is a play? And the more he talks about them, the more you're like, do I know what a play is? (laughs) And so he doesn't ask what is acting, but he does ask what is an actor. Okay. And he says, the theater is the actor and the actor is the theater. The actor combines in himself two entirely different entities, the artist and the material, which is to say, like, he's making the work of art, but it's also made out of him. He always uses male pronouns as, like, 1922. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do that were I him, but, you know, just because I'm using his quotes. Mm -hmm. Um, So the actor has to dig deep into themselves because they are the creative material. And then he talks about the difference between an actor who lives his parts and one who imitates life is the same as between a living person and a mechanical puppet. No matter how precise he may be trying to copy life, if he doesn't live through his emotions, he'll never be able to get hold of the spectator to entrance him. And he keeps going on and on like this, although it's a a short lecture, but at no point does he actually say, what does an actor do? (laughs) At no point does he define it. And so it's very funny when you ask me this, I kept looking through all this stuff because there's lots of people who comment on acting and how it works and what the difference is between good acting and bad acting. And, you know, and that's changed over time and changes culture to culture, but none of them ever just say, this is actually what acting is. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Acting in some ways is taking all of the things we do in our everyday behavior of relating to people, you know, because we really are all performing all the time, whether we realize it or not. And it makes all of those things self-conscious for the purpose of storytelling. Um, Beyond that, I actually find it really hard to define as well. Yeah, I like this raw material idea because it does help me think a little bit. When we're writers, we craft sentences and we're trying to convey meaning of some kind or an Mm -hmm. experience of some kind. And the actor is sort of the medium for that is what's happening in the theater or or in a film. But in, in your book, you're writing about the method. Yeah. Which is something that I certainly thought I knew what it was before I read the book. I think a lot of people think they do. I know you have kind of a running gag on Twitter now where people send you things that aren't method, (laughs) that people have declared our method in the media. um, And you explain why they're not and what a good method version of that acting would be. So what is the method sort of in brief and like, 
If you're an ordinary person, what are some names you might have heard associated with it? I like that you said in brief because it's a 400 page book answering that question. So I could go on quite a long time. I'll just I'll start with naming some actors who you've probably heard of. Right. Al Pacino, Ellen Burstyn, Jane Fonda, Sidney Poitier, Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, Shelley Winters. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Right. So the method actually has a kind of living definition that changes a lot. But what it means to people who teach it from about 1950 on, what it means to people kind of in the know, the expert definition, is that it's a series of exercises and techniques aimed at unlocking sort of all the different parts of the self in all of its idiosyncrasies in order to use those parts of the self in creating the imagined reality of the character. So again, going back to the actor being both the artist and the material, they're both the painter and the paint. So you want to go into yourself to get as many different colors for your paint palette as possible. Lee Strasberg, the person who kind of codified the method, would always talk about colors when talking about acting. Hmm. He used that term a lot. And it's most famous or perhaps infamous for its emphasis on psychology and emotion and memory. And for this particular exercise in which you summon a strong emotion by summoning a memory associated with that strong emotion using the sensory details of that memory. So, you know, if you want to do grief, you know, if I was doing grief, I might think about like putting my dog down, which is a thing I had to do about seven years ago, but I wouldn't try to picture it. I would try to remember like the smell of the room or the sound of the room or how her fur felt and all that stuff. And you just sort of keep doing that until you figure out what's going to trigger the emotion. And then that becomes actually a kind of shorthand that you can actually use. So like if you're on stage and now I've got to cry, you can be like the soft feel of her fur. Oh my God. You know what I mean? And then you're, you're golden. And in fact, golden is the color that they often call whatever the metaphorical vessel is that holds all this stuff. It's your golden notebook or your golden casket of feelings or, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something from Anchorman. <laughs> I'm trapped in a golden casket of feelings. Yeah, Exactly. One thing that I think surprised me while I was reading your book, which is structured like a biography. I think that's one yeah. thing I really love about it as a book is it's a biography of the method. And like a biography, it has stories in it, it has characters. You know, the method itself kind of has like parents and an adolescence and moves to America and tries to make it big in Hollywood. Just yeah, exactly. Everything that you expect from a book like that. And I think that's what makes it really fun to read. What also was really interesting to me was the political and cultural context in which it was developed. So it's a time of overthrow. It's a time of sort of sorting out, like, what should a person be in a society? <laughs> all of these different things. What is the purpose of having theater at all? Is it entertainment? Is it revolutionary, all of these different things. So can you just talk a little bit about that strand of the story starting in Russia and sort of moving into the U.S. from there? Yeah, absolutely. So Konstantin Stanislavski, who's the actor, director, theorist, and multi-million dollar industrialist, he's all of these things at once, who would eventually come up with the system, which was sort of the precursor to the method. Stanislavski is born in the early 1860s, which is a time of great upheaval in Russian society because the serfs, who are slaves, the slaves are liberated. Uh, the czar emancipates them, but it has a whole bunch of different impacts. The feudal system changes, so instead of it being slaves, it's you know peasants who then are tithing to a landlord, essentially. But also, 
a lot of wealthy landowners had surf companies. These were highly, highly skilled companies of actors. They were triple threats. They could sing, they could dance. And it was prestigious to have kind of the best slave company of all your friends. And you would invite your friends over for dinner and they would, they would put on a show. Actually, I'm reading the brothers Karamazov right now. And one of the characters is when she was growing up was part of a surf company, Gregory's wife. Hmm. Uh, and so she's a great dancer. And when he discovers this, he beats her. It's a very weird chapter of the book. But so all of this theatrical talent gets kind of freed up and it starts to really improve ideas of theater at a time when the society is also gradually liberalizing. By the time Stanislavski is an adult, it's a much more autocratic system, but he's kind of this liberal dreamer. So that's sort of one of the things that's going on. And then, of course, we're slowly marching towards the Russian Revolution. Mm -hmm. The same summer that the Moscow Art Theater had its first rehearsals, which was Stanislavski's company, is the same summer that, you know, the Social Democratic Labor Party, which will eventually, of course, overthrow the czar, is uh, being formed. And the Moscow Art Theater takes its first tour of Europe a few years later as a result of the failed 1905 revolution, which had a, a great, great impact on Stanislavski and the members of the company. It's on that tour that Stanislavski has this weird crisis that eventually leads him to start investigating the internal mechanism of the actor, which gives birth to the system. It's because of the revolution and the Civil War that the Moscow Art Theater goes on tour of the United States, which is why we know about this stuff, because that tour was sort of like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I mean, that's how crazy people were going for it. And Richard Boleslavsky and the main teacher at the school he founded, Maria Ospinskaya, stayed in the United States because they couldn't go back to Russia. So that's how that school got founded. And then when you go to the United States, it's like you're marching through the 20s and then you get the Great Depression. And, you know, Harold Klerman, Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, Cheryl Crawford, Aaliyah Kazan, Robert Lewis, Clifford Odets, all the people who would eventually make up the group theater, they were utopian dreamers. They were trying to envision a new way that human beings could relate to each other. They saw themselves as kind of the new American man rising Phoenix-like from the ashes of World War I and the Great Depression, which had proven that war and capitalism were now over. And of course, at the end of that decade, war and capitalism reasserted themselves, and the group actually sort of broke up in part because they were kind of so heartbroken at that failure. And and one of the weird ironies of this utopian dream of the group, which was really about collectiveness and how people relate to each other within a collective that has its own will and all that sort of stuff is they invent the most individualistic <laughs> acting technique the world has ever seen in the method. And the method takes hold in the United States in the 1950s, which is a time of really great conformity. You know, it's really the height of the McCarthy era, you know, all that kind of Eisenhower suburban stuff that you may be familiar with. And the reason why it takes such hold is because of its emphasis on subtext, which is really showing people like, look at how repressed we really are. And that's the truth that it's kind of telling at that time. And, you know, it kind of goes from there. You can see the way that the methods reimagining of what a leading man is helps lead to the popularity of Kennedy. In fact, Norman Mailer, who's covering Kennedy at the time, describes him as a method actor. And then, you know, when you get into the 70s, you get back to this place of like, we're digging inside for the truth, just like the church committee and, and the Watergate investigation are digging under America to look for the truth. And it really all starts to fall apart in the 1980s, which is when the post-war liberal consensus dies. And, you know, we stop having consensus about anything in public life, and that includes acting, and the method's hegemony really ends during that period. So hmm. there's a weird way in which it's both always mirroring and also because it's so central, helping to shape 
the political currents and the national narratives of both of those countries. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think at least if you watch films, Hollywood films that are in the 20s and 30s, and then you see this era of censorship that happened during the Hayes Code era where Hollywood was literally dictating what you could and couldn't do in a movie. And it's sort of ending right about when the method is becoming prevalent, or at least when we're seeing actors who are method actors and saying, oh, there's something like different about what we're seeing there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the studio system starts to unravel in 1948 because they lose a Supreme Court case, right? United States v. Paramount Pictures. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know this history very well, Alyssa, so maybe you should tell it, but they stop having a guarantee against risk because they no longer own the movie theaters where the movies are being shown. And it just kicks off this chain reaction. So this thing happens where the studio no longer can keep huge numbers of people on salary. They're gradually not originating the movies anymore. They're just funding and distributing them. And indeed by the seventies and eighties, they really are just distributing them at that point for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's this sort of destruction of the old order and the thing that's there to take that place is method acting. The actor studio is founded right before the studio system starts to unravel. Lee Strasberg takes it over in the early 1950s. And so it's really, really well situated to come in and kind of take over amidst all of that stuff. And then a bunch of the movies that involve method people are really important to the story of taking apart the Hays Code. Because the Hays Code doesn't fully fall apart until the 1960s. And it falls apart right. in the 1960s and gets gradually turned into the rating system we know today, kind of due to three movies. I mean, there's other ones, but the big ones are The Pawnbroker, which is directed by Sidney Lumet, who uh, went to the actor studio. It stars Rod Steiger, who was a big member of the actor studio. It's got a bunch of other method people in it, you know, and its narrative kind of unfolds along method lines because it's all constructed around sense memory flashbacks, weirdly. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is directed by Mike Nichols, who was really devoted to Lee Strasberg as a teacher. He, he took directing classes with Lee Strasberg and they were very important to him and he was very influenced by Kazan, you know, who's a member of the group and a co-founder of the studio. And then Blow Up, which, you know, has no connection to the method at all, but, you know, <laughs> because it had a lot of nudity in it, it really was uh, pushed the envelope of what could be allowed. So those things change in part because of the actor studio and the method and what Lee Strasberg is teaching people. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what changed, and this is maybe what's more evident from where we sit today, even if you don't know a whole lot about Hollywood's history in the mid-century, is what we think good acting looks like. Mm -hmm. Like when if I watch a movie from the 1930s, I mean I might enjoy it, but I'm very aware that what I'm watching looks nothing like, you know, Bonnie and Clyde. And it's not just the subject matter. And it doesn't look anything like Die Hard for that matter. Right. You know, there's like very different things happening here. Um, and if you look at who wins Oscars for performance over you know, the 94 years of the Oscars, we're seeing like very distinctly different styles of acting. And again, until I read your book, I always thought of Marlon Brando as like a method actor, which I know is like a touchy subject a little bit for him. But there is a moment in The Streetcar Named Desire that he's in where you can see like, oh, it feels like generations of acting colliding, like physically in front of you on screen. So when it changed what we think good acting looks like, what did it change acting from and to for us? That's a great question. You know, if you take acting during the studio system era, particularly during the code era, it's really dependent on 
the star factory that they had built. You know, like it was a star-based system and those stars were on salary at the studios. Those stars had carefully crafted public persona with often somewhat or even sometimes completely invented backstories that were just supposed to fuel that persona. And then they are playing variations on that persona in the movies that they're in. And they make a ton of movies. I mean, they make a lot of movies a year, those stars. Even the big name ones are making like seven movies a year. It is a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're getting paid a weekly salary for 40 some odd weeks of work a year. So usually when you go to see those movies, you're not really looking to be seduced into thinking the actor is the character. That's not what they're trying to do. You're sort of triangulating between the actor and the character and the way that they're playing around with type. And this isn't like a cuckoo, you know, academic reading of that transaction. That's like how these things were marketed. Like it's very overt in the literature of the period that that's what you were doing. Yeah. So, you know, you go to see Cary Grant in bringing a baby. You're not thinking, wow, what a convincing nerd that guy <laughs> is, right? You're thinking it's fucking hilarious that Cary Grant is playing this uptight nerd mm -hmm. and Catherine Hepburn's going to, you know, kind of dance around him and seduce him and fluster him because no one's better at being flustered than Cary Grant, right? You know, like that's why you're, you're watching it. Mm -hmm. So that, that really changes and it changes really fast after A Streetcar Named Desire. Mm -hmm. Because if you watch A Streetcar Named Desire, Marlon Brando is just disappearing into that character. I mean, and it's also a very weird, very idiosyncratic performance. So you're watching this thing where you're like, no one could play this role this way but this person. Mm -hmm. But they are also fully the character. Now, that's how I'm going to clear the table. Don't you ever talk that way to me. Pig, Polak, disgusting, vulgar, greasy. Those kind of words have been on your tongue and your sister's tongue is too much around here. What do you think you are, a pair of queens? I just remember what Huey Long said, that every man's a king and I'm the king around here. And don't you forget it. And that along with versatility, real versatility, become the way that we talk about good acting mm. very quickly. I mean, the star system still exists. We still love stars. It, it persists as particularly in blockbusters or in big romances and stuff like that. But, you know, if you're going to see like a good movie or a serious movie or whatever, you want that feeling that you're getting lost in it, that the actor is really being the character that some piece of themselves is at stake. You know, what we think of is good acting. But, you know, when it all breaks apart, in the 80s, and we should still say lots of people still study the method. Stanislavski's ideas about theater are still absolutely the foundation of how we think about acting and directing and text analysis. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've ever used the word beat, uh, that's a word that comes from Stanislavski, for example. But it does break apart in terms of its dominance. And what appears to replace it at the Oscars anyway is impersonating real people. Mm -hmm. Because that, if you've looked at that graph, you know, you and I both looked at that graph, right? That scatter chart about Oscars and playing real people. The number of people who are nominated for like an icon that you already are aware of this person or you've seen them in the newspaper or on yeah. TV or whatever and the actors come in and play them, which can be really great performances or not, but they tend to be the way to get a nomination. But they weren't always. They're the way to get mm -hmm. a nomination this century. If you look at that graph, which you posted, I think, in our interview that we did before, you could see this kind of hockey stick in the 21st century. And my theory is, maybe I'm wrong here, but my theory is, is that 
that's a form of acting that's very visible and recognizable. There's like a rubric you and I teach. Mm -hmm. There's a rubric there, right? Where you can be like, oh, did they convince me that they had captured the external mannerisms of the person? Yes. All right. Now, did they also within that seem to bring up some inner essence so that it wasn't just an impression? Yes. You know what I mean? Like we have really objective criteria for what that looks like, which I think is why it's gotten so popular. It's either that or if for best actress, it's like you are in a movie that no one sees where you like die of an obscure illness. Right. That's the <laughs> other way that you get like if you should have won many years ago, that's the other way that you get your Oscar. That's a very good way to get an Oscar is to just not win it when you should be getting it. And then exactly 40 years later, they'll be like, all right, Glenn Close. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, all of that, I think sort of puts some bumpers around it for me and helps me understand what I'm seeing when I'm seeing actors choose certain roles or seeing movie studios decide which movies they're going to try and sort of push for Oscars. But I do feel like all of it still strikes me as ironic in some way, I guess, that the method ended up there because the roots of it feel very much about like, let's find a way to like bring theater to the people that will like change them and make them see things differently. And, you know, when it comes to America, there's that same kind of like push to like bring workers. And this isn't supposed to just be like fancy Broadway shows. It's really not. Yeah. And that I think surprises a lot of people. And I, I think it might surprise people in our time too, because I certainly hear from people, two ends of a poll. One is art should always be political and that that's kind of the only thing that matters about it. On the other hand, there's lots of people who feel like there shouldn't be a political purpose to art, whether or not the politics are out front. But it felt like the method really was a, a movement towards a kind of political nature to art, or at least what they felt like art should be doing with the audience themselves. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, another weird irony there is Stanislavski was absolutely opposed to overt politics in artwork. Mm. He, he just thought that was not good. That's not what good art was. I mean, I think part of that was probably that he somehow managed to survive and thrive under Lenin and Stalin. And like, that was the way that he did it. But mm -hmm. that said, it was always the dream of the Moscow Art Theater that they would do performances for workers. Mm. It didn't happen until the revolution, but it was always their dream that they would bring art to the people. The government kept them from doing it. Like workers essentially weren't allowed to go see plays. I mean, like there was like a whole nother censorship regime that you had to go through if you wanted to perform for workers because they were almost all illiterate. I mean, you know, at the time of the revolution, the literacy rate in Russia was 20%. And so the state really wanted to control what theater people got to see and who got to see it and how, because it was like such an effective way to communicate with people. And in fact, after the revolution, like everyone started a theater company. I mean, it's crazy. You know, you read Oliver Saylor, who was an American journalist and writer and PR guy, was in Moscow to see theater, like immediately following the revolution. And he's just like, it's crazy. This is a theater utopia. Every street corner, there's like an armed checkpoint, but there's also a play going on, you know? Every military unit had a theater company. Every factory had a theater company. And so they're trying to do these plays for everybody and they're paying the actors every week that a performance is on, whether they're in it or not. And, you know, all this other stuff, but it's during the great depression. They're trying to produce commercial theater. I mean, it's a miracle that they hung on for 10 years at all. Given that, you know, if you tried to do that today, you wouldn't last 10 minutes. And then eventually the nonprofit theater system is founded in the nonprofit theater system. A lot of it really is about bringing art to the people 
And, you know, you look at ticket prices today and you look at who can go and see theater and who can't go and see theater. And it's not just a New York problem. And you can see that the system really failed at doing that. Like it really, it succeeded for a while and then it failed as funding dried up and as the popularity of the art form declined. And it's a real crisis. It's a crisis that's still ongoing and that we haven't figured out how to solve yet. Hmm. So one more kind of question about the method itself, which is, so when it jumped from stage to screen, did it change? Oh boy. You know, acting for the screen is different than acting for the stage in so many ways. Like for instance, the camera is up close to you. Also, you might retake the same scene a whole bunch of times from different kind of angles. And on top of everything else, you're shooting out of sequence, which I know lots of people have found to be a very difficult switch from theater to film. But there are other things that exist in stage acting that don't exist in film acting. So did it change? How did it change? Yeah, I mean, film provided a great opportunity and a great challenge to the method. You've listed a bunch of the challenges. I want to briefly touch on the opportunity, which is that, you know, everyone who's going from stage to screen during this period talks about the camera as a mind reader. The camera can see you think, you know, it picks up every little nuance and the actors are miked. So they're now relieved from the pressure of projecting all the stuff they're doing internally in such a way that a theatrical audience can see and hear it. Stanislavski had that problem, actually. In 1915, if I remember correctly, he has yet another crisis. I feel like he had crises about acting theory all the time. You know, my salad was overdressed. What does this mean about sense memory? Uh, But he had this crisis when he was playing Salieri in Pushkin's Mozart and Salieri, which is the uh, basis of Amadeus. So if you've seen Amadeus, you know the story. And he really, like, nailed it, the internal mechanism. He's like, man, I experienced the heck out of that role. But he couldn't communicate that to the audience. He had lost the method of communication. Hmm. And so that led to a renewed attention in the kind of externals, in the incarnating. How does the actor incarnate what they've experienced in such a way that the audience can perceive it? Which he had sort of neglected over the first decade of the system's development because he was already really well-trained physically and vocally. That was not the problem that he was facing. The method on stage, people are constantly complaining that you can't understand what people are saying. They're talking too quietly. They're mumbling. It's too internal. And you can understand why. If you were in a thousand-seat Broadway house, that might be true. So the camera and the microphone take that problem away immediately, which is amazing. But they introduce all these new challenges. In a play, particularly if you're in a lot of the play, if you're on stage for a lot of it, you know, if you've done your preparation right, all the kind of teachers of Stanislavski in the United States have sort of said this. If you kind of do your preparation right and you just enter, your memory of the lines and the blocking and the internal, like all of that will sort of be self-reinforcing and it becomes mm. this kind of perpetual motion machine and and the work just kind of happens. And, and if you've done the work right, you don't actually have to think about it while you're on stage. You know what I mean? But you can't do that if it's out of sequence and you can't do that if you're doing the same line over and over and over again. If you have to hit a little piece of tape, you know, you have to hit that mark. And Mm -hmm. if you have to remember your gestures so that when you're doing coverage, you know, the the shots will line up. I mean, all that stuff. So Strasberg really didn't know what to do about that or rather Hmm. in his defense, he insisted that it was all the same. Hmm. He just insisted like you're well-trained. Just remember your training. Just do it. It's all the same. But I really think that's because he hadn't done any film acting. He didn't do any film acting until Godfather Part Two in the 70s. And, you know, he'd been teaching Stanislavski-based acting since the 1920s, right? So I think that's really why. 
the actors start to figure out a bunch of different things that are workarounds. The most famous one of which is never breaking character, right? If you're never, (laughs) that's the big one. That's the big thing that starts to evolve is if you uh, never break character, then you never have to work to get back in character. It's actually kind of ingenious if you think about it. And this would be like the camera stops rolling, but you keep the accent that's not yours or something much bigger than that, but certainly that. Yeah. It can get bigger than that, but yeah, it is certainly that. You just try your hardest to kind of hold on to what's going on. You might be like pretty antisocial on set to kind of be protective of that stuff. Not a jerk, but just kind of standoffish because you've got to kind of protect where you are emotionally. Yeah, I mean, it's things like that. You would keep the accent. You might ask that people call you by the character's name, even when the camera's not rolling. You might sort of hold on to their mannerisms. You're just trying to live in their imagined reality in a sustained way so that when they call action, you're ready again. Because, you know, the other challenges and people write about this over and over and over again in their memoirs, method actors, I mean, you know, the actor doesn't get to call action. They don't care whether you're ready or not. When the director's ready to roll, you have to be ready. Mm -hmm. They can't wait for you to be like, I'm thinking of the velvety texture of my dog's fur. You know, for the grief scene, Mm -hmm. you've just got to stay in it. And that's a real challenge. That's really hard. I have great admiration for anyone who can do that, frankly. What does it mean to give an authentic performance as an actor? On the one hand, your portrayal isn't authentic. That's why they call it acting. But with the advent and spread of the method, our notion of an authentic performance, or even of authenticity itself, was changed forever. More on that with Isaac Butler after a quick break. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. 
That's Burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Well, I think I want to use that as a springboard to ask you some questions about how we feel like watching people perform who are method actors or who work with the method, I guess is the right way to say it, how that's really affected the way that we perceive all kinds of things. So in your book, for instance, you get into this idea of authenticity, the notion of authenticity. And authenticity is a very important, increasingly important thing to people throughout the 20th century, for sure, up to a point. And it's also a really challenged idea in our time. You know, we're all kind of performing ourselves for the camera all the time. We're also holding the camera half the time. Yep. So when we think about the notion of authenticity, have our ideas about what being authentic is changed because of kind of observing this shift over a period of time and having ideas about what it looks like to be an authentic actor? I mean, I think so. And I sort of think, how could they not, right? Because you have this new idea that's predicated on like, this is what authenticity looks like. And, you know, you watch a lot of that, you might become convinced. I think we all live somewhere within the dialectic that you've described of like really valuing authenticity and also sort of knowing it's not real at the same time. It's like important, but not real, like any number of other social constructs. And we sort of vacillate which side of that we're on at any given moment. Like, ah, authenticity, it's not real. Who gives a crap about authenticity? And then other times you're like, but I authentically feel this thing and I want that authenticity <laughs> to be respected, you know? Mm-hmm. And that dialectical tension, I think, has only gotten, you know, heightened. We're only pulling those strings tighter and tighter and tighter during the pandemic, especially because we're spending all of our lives on social media. Mm-hmm. And in social media, it's like, you know, you're performing. Everyone is performing to some extent. Um, there are people who are really good at it. There are people who are really bad at it. But you sort of know that you're doing it and you know everyone else is doing it as well. But you're also trying to perform usually some kind of authenticity within that. I actually hope that's kind of a good cultural opportunity for us all to dig in and to re-examine this weird thing that is actually as difficult to define as acting itself and be like, well, how much do we believe in this? And do we value this? And and what would it be like if we didn't care about authenticity? And I'm saying this as someone who does care about it. Like, that's a scary mm-hmm. question. It's like, what if we just like didn't for a little bit? What would happen then? You know, what I think the method gives us is actually a lot of stylistic signs of authenticity of what someone really feeling something or really going through something or really experiencing something might look like and what it might look like to live that way. And I think we kind of have imported that in the same way that, you know, paintings teach us how to see the sunrise, Mm -hmm. you know, or a poem might teach us what a plum tastes like, you know, Um, or how to apologize for eating them. I mean, I think it's a very similar way that art shapes our perception of the world. And once the method comes into acting, part of what it's shaping is our perception of what authentic behavior in people of all genders, but especially men, Mm -hmm. what that looks like. Right. And the idea of what it would look like to be a strong man. Yeah. Right. Or to be acting in the proper way. Or to be sexually desirable as a man. Exactly. I mean, that's another thing that's changing. I mean, Brando is sexually desirable as a man by like any standards in in A Streetcar Named Desire. You just see him and you're like, oh my God, I have to go rethink some things. (laughs) But, you know, part of what's going on is the group a lot of them were first-generation Jews Mm -hmm. or Italians or, I mean, 
Leah Kazan was an Anatolian Greek. He was also an immigrant. You know, it's immigrants. And part of what's happening is this contestation over really specifically the boundaries of whiteness, who gets to be allowed into whiteness, who gets allowed to be sexy within that new vision of whiteness. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that the method is really changing. And one of the watershed events in that, a watershed event in film history, is The Graduate. Because Dustin mm-hmm. Hoffman is short and he's really Jewish looking. And I say this as a Jew and he has a lot of shame about that and the stories he talks about about auditioning for The Graduate and stuff. And it really like the idea that like a little neurotic, angry Jewish guy with a very big nose could be the leading man and get to fuck in a Hollywood movie was a big, big, big shift, a big enough shift that, you know, when Al Pacino talks about almost getting fired from The Godfather, he talks about it in terms of, you know, that he was a new type. And Al Pacino is, I think, at that age, an objectively beautiful man. Mm -hmm. But he's so Italian-looking that they didn't really want to cast him as Michael Corleone (laughs) in The Godfather, right? Yes. I mean, like, it's really crazy. And so Coppola had to fight to keep him in the movie. Mm -hmm. And so part of what's happening during New Hollywood is who gets to be attractive is changing. Yeah, So all of that makes me think about the other people that we see on screen all the time, which are like political candidates (laughs) and the very clear shift that we see in the way that we view and what we expect from a presidential candidate. If we want to kind of get down to brass tacks, that's usually what we're talking about. You mentioned Kennedy, you know, the idea of calling someone a method actor who's not an actor um, is interesting, but certainly this is a big part of the story, I think, a little bit and how people's tastes and ideas of who is trustworthy and who is a leader and who is an authentic person, who did they want to have a beer with or whatever, as opposed to perhaps who is the great orator, you know, who gives beautiful speeches. How do you think those are related? I mean, Kennedy is the first, really the first TV president. I mean, the history of television is actually the history of presidential campaigns to some extent. It's like one of the first watershed moments in TV history was the broadcast of the Philadelphia conventions. They broadcast them wall to wall in the forties to sell sets, you know, but it really (laughs) takes off on a different level with the televised presidential debates and with Kennedy and Kennedy is really an actor. I mean, he's many other things. He's a veteran. He's all these other things, but he's really a performer and he's really good at projecting this leading man image. The way I talk about in the book is elections become an audition to be the protagonist of the nation. Right. And that really changes with Kennedy. I mean, there's not a single election from Kennedy on where the less charismatic person won. Right. I mean, maybe Biden, Trump, depending on what you think of Trump's charisma, but think about everything else that was going on. There's a plague and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the great performers are the people who really start winning. And then eventually we elect a Hollywood actor and then Mm -hmm. like a game show and reality show host. Right. And so that's a really wild thing. So I think, again, it's like it's shaping our ideas of male authenticity and charisma, especially it couldn't help but affect presidential politics. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's happening right when Kennedy is running to be president is the method is giving us a bunch of new, confident, agentic leading men in Sidney Poitier, Paul Newman, Steve McQueen. And although he was not a Lee Strasberg student, he was a Stella Adler student, Warren Beatty. Mm -hmm. And Kennedy wanted Warren Beatty to play him 
in a biopic, right? I mean, like he was really into it. When Norman Mailer, who's an actor studio member, is talking about Kennedy and covering him at the convention, he compares him to Marlon Brando. So these are the metaphors we're already thinking about. And Kennedy beats Nixon, who does not know how to perform for TV, really. I mean, he did a great job earlier in the checker speech, but he doesn't know how to do it in the, he just gets outclassed, right? Mm -hmm. But then by 68, he's really learned how to do it. He's really learned how to project this different kind of persona. And then, you know, he's a crazy liar. And so we want the more authentic Southern peanut farmer. And, you know, you can just see how it goes from president to president to president, how these ideas of authenticity and truth and, you know, the male persona that the method is shaping on our movie screens are also shaping what we're thinking about at the ballot box. Yeah. And I was thinking about this because, you know, as you know, in the book, we've kind of moved into, I don't know, would you say a post-method era Yes, with Hollywood? Yes. And, you know, so it's funny because I thought about it a little bit as, you know, we have this sort of mannered theatricality and then we have this sort of digging into a character's like emotional reality. And now we have like Nick Cage. (laughs) I love Nick Cage. And we have these incredible actors who are clearly doing some of both. (laughs) And also some of them are, are less incredible. But that to me actually maps onto thinking about Trump as everybody knows this guy's not real, but he's doing something bigger and larger than life. And it's just a very odd thing to watch. But how would you say the performances that we see out of like a Nick Cage or somebody like that today relate to method actors or to earlier actors even? Well, Nicolas Cage has said in the past that he's, you know, really into German expressionist film, that he's really into what's that movie in the 80s where he's just giving like the most over the top performance of all time as the vampire where he's the vampire. (laughs) Vampire's kiss. Thank you. Vampire. Yeah. (laughs) So like in Vampire's Kiss, Nicolas Cage is literally trying to mimic gestures from Nosferatu. You know, he'll do quotations or he'll base a character on a an animated animal, you know, I mean, like he doesn't believe that acting is really about truth the way that the method conceives of truth. He really doesn't believe that the goal of acting is to hold as a twer a mirror up to nature. You know, he's like, it's an art form. I'm an artist. I mean, he's almost like a doing free jazz or something a lot of the time. (laughs) But of course the crazy thing is, is what's the movie that gets Nicolas Cage back to respectability. It's not really Mandy where he gets to go really over the top it's pig. Yep. And pig is actually, I think my argument is, is that what that movie's really about is male authenticity mm-hmm. and it's really informed by the method, whether it realizes it or not. So if you've seen pig, which I know you have. Yes. Came out last year. It was a really kind of a shocker of a movie when it landed in our laps because he plays this. Well, the pitch for the movie is Nick Cage has a truffle hunting pig and goes on a rampage, which just sounded incredible. Totally different movie than you're expecting from that. Although that is technically correct. Yeah. So to do a method close read of that film, that movie brings Nicolas Cage back into respectability and put him on the probably Oscar long list. And it's the performance in which he does the least and he's the Mm -hmm. most restrained and he's the most naturalistic and most internal and most methody. And the whole point of that movie is that he is a more authentic person than everyone around him. So when his co-star shows up, who's the kid from Hereditary, who's a really good actor, he's giving this very mannered performance. Like when you start the movie, you're kind of like, what is he doing? Like, that's not, but then you realize that 
it's not that he's an actor doing a bad job playing a hotshot. He's playing a character who is doing a bad job being a hotshot, mm-hmm. right? It's actually a character choice. And so Nicolas Cage's character's authenticity kind of throws him off and reveals that that's a veneer. Then later on, they go to a restaurant and the other guy at the restaurant is giving this whole performance of, you know, micro gastronomy. And Nicolas Cage is like, hey, you know, you used to work for me and didn't you want to open just an old English pub? What he confronts him with is how inauthentic he is and the guy starts crying. So the way Nicolas Cage navigates through Portland, Oregon and wins, essentially defeats everyone who tries to come at him is not with violence, but with 1970s method masculinity. That's what he does. Mm. And the way that he's eventually able to get what he needs from Adam Arkin's character is he serves him a meal, an exact replica of a meal that holds basically Adam Arkin's last happy memory. And so he uses sense memory. That's his weapon, his sense memory, Mm -hmm. right? That's what he does. I remember every meal I ever cooked. I remember every person I ever served. What's wild is the way that Nicolas Cage gets back into everyone's good graces is by doing this movie that's sort of the subtext of it is the method is truer than everything else on some (laughs) level, which is just a really weird thing to be doing in 2021. It's very conveniently tied into the release of your book. I know, right? (laughs) Thanks, Nick. But I I will say that one of the things that happens in the post-method era is we really do get this wonderful diversity of ideas about what good acting is. And what good acting is really becomes contextual to the material it's in, whether it's serving that material or needs to be at an interesting angle to that material. And I think that's tremendous. I think that's wonderful. I am not a method partisan. Good acting can be any number of things. And it depends on what the project is. And I really think, you know, that we live at a time where you get like the hyper real performances of Spike Lee movies and you get the quiet internalized performances of Kelly Reichardt movies and you get Nicolas Cage and you get Viola Davis and you get Nathan Lane, you get everything in between. I I think that's really great. The downside is, is I feel like the combination of that and the rise of the kind of tentpole blockbuster, which is now the only way you can make money at the movie theater is if it's a tentpole blockbuster has led to a really dominant strain of acting that is quite shallow Mm -hmm. because it actually needs to be quite shallow to serve the needs of the material. And that worries me because I do think that it's telling a story to us all of what human beings are that is false and very simple and I'm not going to say dangerous. That's putting it too far. But I do think that it's giving us a vision of human nature that is incorrect and that could kind of throw off how we see and relate to the world. I mean, when I think of acting today, the kind of acting that gets attention from moviegoers maybe has everything to do with casting, which does sound a little bit like what you were saying about sort of the pre-method era where you're there basically because you want to see this actor You want to see Chris Evans be Captain America and you already like Captain America. And so you want to see this handsome guy be Captain America. And like, that's his whole role there. Any emotion he has is like purely in the plot and you kind of know who he's going to be. And anytime a character has an actual internal conflict, it's like telegraphed loudly at you rather than being conveyed in the performance. Is that kind of how you think about it? I do. I do. And I think that in the streaming era, 
you know, now that we're at peak TV and I want to say there's lots of wonderful TV shows. I'm not down on TV. Do you know what I mean? But a similar thing has started to happen because we're expecting audiences to not actually watch the things they're watching. Yes. Which is sometimes true, (laughs) which is sometimes true, but it leads to a new kind of simplicity and clarity of writing, directing and performing, which results in material that you really don't actually have to watch while you're watching. Mm -hmm. And regardless of the political valences of that, that's just sad to me. You know, Um, one thing I've been talking about a bunch is the plot of Power of the Dog is not. (laughs) I was just going to bring that up. (laughs) Power of the Dog is not a hard movie to follow if you just watch it. It just doesn't tell you things in language. It just expects that you're watching it. It's not a subtle movie. Campion is not a very subtle filmmaker. She's just a visual filmmaker. Mm -hmm. She expects you to actually like take in information visually instead of telling you what's going on. And somehow that's become that the movie is confusing. Uh, that's, that's been its reputation, which is very strange to me because that movie's not confusing. The characters aren't particularly surprising. The plot, so there's some surprises in the plot, but it unfolds in a very, very clear way. And so mm-hmm. I've been really freaked out by the reception that that movie has gotten because I feel like it's the first to me really clear sign that like really how we're watching things as a culture has like really dramatically changed in ways that I think are worrisome if you care about storytelling as an art form, which I do. Yeah. And, you know, if actors are the raw material that the story is made through, then you need to be looking at them and not just listening to them, maybe listening to them. Yeah, I totally agree. And that entire thing around the power of the dog has been really bizarre to watch happen. But, you know, of course, most people watched it on Netflix instead of in a theater. And it's more socially acceptable to have your phone. Right by the side of your chair if you're in your in your house. I feel like I definitely do that. You know, if I'm watching The <laughs> After Party, which is a really fun show, but it's just silly good fun. It's like, you know, I might check a text message, but I was watching that in a really specific scenario. I was visiting my mother-in-law. My daughter had gone to bed. The three of us were watching and it was like, okay, this is the big Oscar movie. It's by an important director. We gotta watch it. You know what I mean? And, and so <laughs> yep. you, we really were paying attention even though it was on Netflix. And sometimes I hope that maybe if films that aren't in English become more popular with American audiences, that there'll be more need to actually look at the screen because you just don't know what's going on in Drive My Car if you're not reading the subtitles. Yeah. Well, you know, Drive My Car is a long film, which is tough to watch when you have a seven-year-old. So I really look forward now that it's on HBO Max to watching it in 20-minute installments (laughs) over several weeks. There's a kind of performance that just screams Oscar bait. Often, this shows up as a charismatic, over-the-top portrayal of an iconic historical person. I'll ask Isaac about some of this year's Oscar-nominated performances, and we'll hear his pick for who should win Best Actor after one last quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. 
Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Speaking of the Oscars, just a couple more questions about this because we are in Oscar season and... You know, it's been a weird few years for the Oscars. We've talked a little bit about the real people roles thing. And I think we counted eight of the 20 acting nominees this year are playing real life icons, almost all of which were literally on TV or they like were always on TV because they were Diana or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. It's not like they're playing writers or. Yeah, we've got Andrew Garfield playing Jonathan Larson. And right. you may or may not know who Jonathan Larson is, but. You kind of have the idea right off the bat, and you know this is the Rent guy. Although I will say, I actually think that's the person who should win Best Actor. Oh, yeah. It's very good. I mean, it's a truly incredible performance. So it's not that playing a real-life person is necessarily a degraded form of acting. It's just the level of attention it gets at award season is totally bewildering to me. Yes, and the fact that you watch a movie like being the Ricardos and just know that these are going to get acting nominations despite being just horrible performances. I think we would both agree. Well, so people get up to a lot of crazy stunts this time of year in order to try to win an Oscar. Why is that? (laughs) (laughs) Why are people running around, you know, building campaigns on I slept in a bear hide or I, you know, I lost 80 pounds or I was rewatching Joker for a piece I was writing recently. I'm sorry. You know, Joaquin Phoenix is a genuinely amazing actor, but he did lose an un believable amount of weight to play that role and then he won an Oscar and and meanwhile he's giving this absolutely brilliant performance in Come On Come On a movie that couldn't get arrested at award season I actually think it's like one of the more profound movies I've seen from last year but it's you know like a quiet movie about family Um, (laughs) so the short answer is because Robert De Niro won an Oscar for Raging Bull in 1980 that's the really short answer 
in terms of particularly male American movie performance, it's like on the waterfront, a bunch of stuff happens, 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 Raging Bull in terms of like influence. And I don't think there's been a movie since Raging Bull as influential as Raging Bull. What he did in that movie and the results it got, both in terms of a truly brilliant performance and it catapulted De Niro. After that movie comes out, people are like, this is the greatest living actor in the world. Just That just had an enormous influence on people. The techniques that he had pioneered over the course of the 1970s for transforming into a character through learning their behaviors, the truth of their behavior, rewriting or ad-libbing moments in the script, staying in character all the time, gaining and losing weight, wearing prosthetics, that sort of in-depth research process just became hugely influential. Mm. And then it became a really great way to build a PR and awards campaign around a movie. And so those two things actually, you know, it's like a self-perpetuating cycle, right? It's like it becomes influential and a good way to get an award, which increases its influence. So more and more people start doing it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. We've obviously reached a moment of backlash around some of that stuff in Mm -hmm. our culture. I think some of that is a much needed consequence of Me Too, that we now expect film sets to be professional workplaces and for people to not act like crazy people in their professional workplace and to not abuse people, you know? So there's some pushback against how difficult you can really be, especially since men can really get away with a lot of that behavior and people aren't men can't. So I think that's one of the dynamics that's going on. I think that it's also a way of being like, here's all the things I did. Isn't it great that I did all these things and they're these really tangible things that I can describe to you and that you know what they are and so you can see how hard I worked. It would be very weird to be like, to get into this part, gee, I, uh, well, first I went through the script and I wrote down everything that everyone says about the character and everything the character says about themselves. And then I went through and I put a little backslash in every time the character changes beats. And then, uh, you know, there were some words that I didn't understand. So I looked those up in a dictionary and then I went to the (laughs) library to do a bunch of research and then, oh, well, you know, it's in the 1950s. So I looked at photos of people in the 1950s and worked it out in front of the mirror. Like, Who's going to print that story, right? But <laughs> right. you're like, well, I lived in a bear carcass while smoking crack and teaching myself to learn Esperanto. Then people yes. are like, get that man an award. Mm-hmm. And the headlines write themselves in that case. They really do. They really do. I mean, you know, it's the attention economy. The attention economy is what is shaping acting more than anything else right now. It used to be the thing that shaped acting was literally human perception. Mm-hmm. Can you see what the actor is doing. Can you hear what they're saying? And can you understand what they're trying to get across? That used to be the limiting force, the thing that's really shaping acting. And I think it is causing this really chaotic, weird time for acting. And in that chaotic, weird time, we have some sure things that we can hold on to. How much crazy work did this crazy person do? And mm-hmm. you know, how good a job did they do of mimicking Charlie Parker on camera, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird because it definitely feels like a lot of times for, you know, very famous actors who want to win an Oscar projects are getting conceived with that stuff in mind, as opposed to like, what is this story? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Why do I want to tell this story? What artist would be best to tell this story? You know? Yeah. And what even is the point of all of this? I think is sometimes the question that goes unanswered. Certainly a question raised by being the Ricardos. Yes. Oh, goodness. Well, on that note, I have one last question. So when you, and I mean you personally, 
Isaac, when you watch like a movie or TV or go to a play and you say, wow, that was an incredible performance. What are you responding to? And, you know, what do you feel like the cultural response to things says about us? You know, like, what is it that we're responding to? Well, what I'm responding to is my impeccable taste. <laughs> my just, oh, my I just, know. <laughs> you know, my just, I just have an eye that is, you know, uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, what I feel like, and actually sometimes I think this puts me at odds with the culture, but not always, uh, at least in theater, is I'm looking for a couple of things. One of them is, does the style of this performance support what the production or the film is doing, mm-hmm. right? Because an individual performance is one component in a very complicated machine, right? And so part of it is just like, is it fitting in in this way that is like supporting what's going on, that's doing something interesting? You know, that to me is actually a really, really important thing. And so a lot of times I think what people particularly in theater often call good acting is actually most acting mm-hmm. or, you know, unless the thing is explicitly a star vehicle, like, you know, if you're playing Mama Rose and Gypsy, you should be doing the most acting. Like that's a big role. It actually serves the piece to give it a bravura turn. Right. But, you know, is it serving the piece? Is it serving what the work of art is doing? Because a naturalistic performance in a Ionesco play, I don't know that that works, for example. Right. So that's one thing that I think is really important. Another thing has to do with assuming we're talking about a psychologically realist, regardless of what the style is, that the psychology of the characters is realistic. Is it a believable performance, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Do I believe they're the person to the extent that one does? And then also within that, like, where's the room for the interesting surprise? Mm. Is You know, where's the room for delight? Which is a tricky sort of three-part thing to juggle. But, you know, it's one of the reasons why I come back to this is going to sound like a crazy thing, but a person who I actually think is a really, in a weird way, underrated and self-effacing actor is Matt Damon. Because, mm. like, mm-hmm. he's done wonderful comedic work, wonderful serious work, wonderful action movie. You know, he works in a variety of genres. I feel like his performances really almost never call attention to themselves unless they're, like, in Ripley, the performance is called attention to because Ripley is a performer, right? And in The Informant, which is almost like a Brechtian comedy or something, you know, the performance gradually gets more and more called attention to it as it goes along. But, you know, you watch something like the last duel, mm-hmm. you know, the lack of vanity of someone who has been that famous for that long in that performance, I actually honestly find deeply moving mm. in a weird way. Clearly, he is serving this very complicated film, which he co wrote in a way that requires him to completely sacrifice his vanity and he just does it, you mm-hmm. know? So that's an example to me of someone who I think is a better actor than we give him credit for. Mm as opposed to lots of great actors who, you know, we give lots of credit to, you know, but I do think that a lot of times what we're looking for is the most impressive performance, mm-hmm. which uh, to me is, you know, maybe it's my directorial background. It's like, actually, unless you need the audience to be impressed, <laughs> it's not always what you want to be doing, you know, like yeah. to give a weird example, right? Like, obviously if you go to see a Jackie Chan movie, you are going to see it to be impressed by the sort of like crazy Buster Keaton stuff that he can do while beating the crap out of 40 guys. Like you are trying to be impressed then. And there are certain dramatic roles. If you go to see Fences, mm-hmm. the August Wilson player, the film, I love August Wilson, but part of what he's doing is he's giving brilliant actors these crazy great monologues for them to just like really impress people with. That is actually part of what makes those plays work, right? Mm. But if everyone in spotlight 
was trying to impress you instead of just trying to play the role, that movie would be a frigging disaster, you know? And so I do worry sometimes that we are drawn to whatever's the biggest, most impressive thing, as opposed to the thing that's like really doing the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that definitely feels like it's a little bit of a skeleton key for understanding what we respond to generally (laughs) in the world. Yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you push it too far and you get Paolo Gucci, right? I mean, it's like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> House of Gucci, greatest acting of the year. <laughs> what the what, what the was going on? <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to end things. Um, thank you so much, Isaac. This has been really a great conversation, and thank you. I feel like I have learned things. I hope that everyone now has a new lens when they're watching the Oscars. Isaac's book, The Method came out in February from Bloomsbury and you can get it literally anywhere you want. So yeah, thank you so much, Isaac. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Alyssa. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. If you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and please rate and review. Join us next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.